Good morning. Good morning. 11th Street Baptist Church exists to exalt God through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We will do this by extending God's love to all, evangelizing the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ, edifying the body of believers, and equipping the saints to serve the Lord. All right, that's our purpose statement. It's on the front of your bulletin there if you're wondering what all these crazy people are doing this morning. All right, kids uh, are welcome to be dismissed for Children's Church. You can be opening your Bibles to 1 Timothy. Thereabouts, we'll be referring to a number of passages here today. If you're nimble with your fingers, you'll be able to follow along. If not, just uh, listen and follow along as best you can. Today, I undertake the daunting task of speaking on the subject of women and ministry. There's perhaps no other subject that we will address in this series that will challenge our ability to interpret God's word correctly and will test our resolve to obey God's word than the subject that uh, we're going to deal with today. If I've been preaching on the, if I were preaching on the subject of women and ministry in 1916 instead of 2016, the subject would have hardly raised an eyebrow. For over 1900 years of the church's history, what has today become a hotbed of controversy was really a non-issue. In fact, the general effect of Christianity on the role of women as it has come to new cultures and new places has generally been very positive, elevating the position of women in the home and in society. The reason the subject of women in ministry is such a controversial issue today is not because any teaching in the Bible has changed. It's because our society has changed around the Bible and what it teaches. Among the various movements that gained momentum during the turbulent 1960s was feminism, the champion of the individual rights of women as an oppressed class. Now, feminism is not bad or good in itself. It just is, and it depends on how it's defined and what is being sought and what you feel about what is being sought makes it whether something that you're going to be opposed to or against or even neutral to. However, the direction of modern feminism has been to seek to eliminate any significant difference in treatment, privilege, or role between men and women. The thinking that is, is that any distinction which is made between a, a man and a woman is discriminatory or unfair in some kind of way. The movement tends to want to minimize or flatten out any differences whatsoever between males and females and their roles in society, home, or even to the church. Now this is very, very different thinking than what we have been reading about in the Bible. 
as far as the family and organization of society and the church is concerned. As you will remember, uh, we talked about eldership, and eldership was a way of organizing a community uh, adopted both by Israel in the Old Testament and by the church in the New Testament that vested authority in the senior men in the household or in the society. It's not surprising then that what the church has traditionally taught and what society is currently promoting, promoting today has come into conflict with one another. Controversy has risen in the church over the interpretation of passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If you have your Bibles, uh, you may turn to that passage, chapter 2, 11 and 12, where, where Paul writes, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Even among Christians who claim to be evangelical and to hold the Bible in high esteem, two camps have arisen in the church today. You may not, may or may not be aware of this, but... Uh, uh, this is a pretty big issue in the Christian church today. The, the two issues, the two camps, one would be called the traditional position or complementarian. It's a big word, but it, it means complementary. Uh, this particular camp believes that God has created men and women equal in worth and value and standing before him and yet different such that they work together and fit together in a complementary fashion. They, they don't have the same roles. They have differing roles in the family and, and in the church. Women are encouraged to learn, yet in a quiet and submissive manner. They may serve in many capacities and teach informally under certain circumstances, but the positions of authority in the church that involve formal teaching are they believe, by God's design, reserved for men. Now, the second uh, position, we might call this progressive, or uh, as it is called officially, egalitarian. I've used the word equalitarian. They mean the same thing. Egalitarian has the word equal in it. In this position, men and women are thought to be equal in all regards, in the home and the church. Women may teach and hold positions of authority in the church on an equal footing with men. Egalitarians argue that if a woman is gifted and feels called to teach and to lead, that is sufficient uh, grounds to permit her to minister in roles traditionally reserved for men. And they argue that passages like 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 that I just read has either been uh, misinterpreted in the past or uh, it was written to a very defined audience way back there in the New Testament time certain conditions that no longer pertain to us today and therefore uh, is, a, is a passage that we don't need to regard anymore as being uh, applicable to us. Now the unfortunate thing about this whole uh, 
difference of opinion within the church is that the controversy is often framed in such a way that people have to choose between being biblical or loving. That's the dilemma. If you hold to the traditional view, you take refuge in your commitment to be faithful to a straightforward and time-honored interpretation of what the Bible says. However, you do so at the, of, the, of the expense of appearing bigoted, chauvinistic, unfair, and unloving toward women in today's society. If you take the more progressive view, you blend right in with what society deems to be correct. You come across as affirming and loving toward women. However, you do so at the cost of denying a straightforward reading of the Bible. You must adopt an interpretation that's different from what the church has held for, say, 1900 years and must go to some considerable lengths and questionable methods in order to make these verses come out in support of that particular position. In this particular case, I truly believe the devil is having a field day and he's got us on the horns of a dilemma because the truth of the matter is this, that if it's God's will and if it's in the Bible, it's not something that is unloving, it is something that is loving. There's not a dichotomy here. It's not a choice between being biblical and loving because God's way is always loving. But that's what the devil is using this for to uh, get us on this horns, and he's having a field day with it today. So that's some background on uh, this particular issue. Uh, but now I want to give you my opinion on the matter. I'm speaking now in my position, my position as the pastor of this church and the authoritative teaching uh, elder or overseer here in the church. But I also speak respecting each believer's uh, right and duty to come to the scripture themselves, to read it for themselves, to pray about it and interpret it in good conscience before the Lord. So I am a traditionalist and a complementarian. You may have already figured that out. As much as I value and respect the role that women have played in history, in the Bible, and in my life personally, and as much as I don't want in any way, shape, or form to imply that any person is any less than infinitely value in the sight of God, my first commitment has to be to interpret the Word of God correctly. I have not found the, the plain and straightforward, the attempts to get around the plain and straightforward reading of the Scripture has to say on this subject to be convincing. And so, uh, let me try to explain my persuasion from the pastoral uh, letters that we've been studying here. First of all, Paul calls the church the household of God. We've looked at this Scripture numerous times. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15 Paul writing to Timothy, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing, to these, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's, what? Come on, wake up. What is it? Household, which is the 
church. Okay, so he refers to the church as the household or the family of God. There is a close connection between the human family as God designed it and the church. There's a parallelism, parallelism between these two institutions. Now, the elder or overseer or pastor, all three words mean the same, in the church serves in a role that is similar to the husband and father in the family. Let me show you by uh, looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, here's where we're going to start flipping through some passages. So, I hope you can uh, uh, follow along. If you can find 1 Timothy, it's just going to be a couple of pages uh, in your Bible. And uh, I'm going to be reading today from the New American Standard Bible, a little different than the one that's in the pew. But uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the passage that, where Paul describes the qualifications of the overseer here, as he puts it. And uh, he says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now he says, an overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife. Now, in order to be a husband of one wife, you've got to be a husband, which means you've got to be a male. Uh, now, I recognize that people have kind of twisted around these roles and genders nowadays, but a husband, in the day that Paul wrote it, meant a man, a male person in the couple between a husband and a wife. So, in order to be a husband, you, you, in order to be a, an overseer, you've got to be a person who is married or a person who can be married to a woman, which means a man. Now, he goes on and gives some other qualifications, but in verse 4, he says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, what Paul is describing here is the role in the home of a, the head of a household who was the senior male in the household. He is the one who oversees or manages his own household. And what he's saying is here is well, the ones that have done well in their own families, in their own homes, should be elevated to a similar position in the church because they're going to be doing the same kinds of things in the church. You see the parallelism there. Now, I'm going to flip over here to Titus chapter 1. Again, here Paul is describing qualifications of elders, and I want to start in verse 7. Um, for God, uh, whoops, let me get into Titus, Titus, past Timothy, whiz past Timothy and get into Titus. Verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, and then he gives some other qualifications, character qualifications, but look at verse 9. He must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now he's describing that the elder, the overseer, must be one who is solidly grounded in God's word. He is able to teach others and to refute those who come in and bring false teaching into the church. Now, the role of religious instruction in the family in the New Testament times, in the Old Testament times as well, was the role and responsibility of the father in the family, the head of the household. And so, again, this position is being transferred over into the church. 
In the family, God has established the husband as head and wife as the helper. Now what Paul is saying here is that these roles cannot be reversed. They cannot be reversed in the family. You cannot make the wife the the head and the husband the helper. And you cannot just take these roles away and act like they don't exist. Not without doing damage to what God says in his word and really damage to the family the way that God has set it up from the beginning. And in a parallel fashion, we're not to reverse or erase the gender-specific roles that God has given us in the church. And I believe that is the way that we must read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He's saying a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. In essence, he's saying that the woman is not to take the role in the church that is reserved for the man uh, in, in, in this particular instance. And in the home, it's the same sense. This is the sense, I believe, that we must read this verse So the conclusion, as I want to bring it to you, is this, that God, in his wisdom, has assigned some roles in the home and in the church to men. Paul is just simply saying in these verses that these roles should not be reversed. Now that's my best understanding of this issue as it's put forth here in the pastoral letters of Paul. But I want to begin now to convince you that because God has assigned certain roles for men, it does not follow that women are of any less value or any less important in God's kingdom work than men. It does not follow. There are many important and significant ways women can serve the Lord and contribute to the progress of God's kingdom. And I want to point out several of these as, we, as they appear here in the pastorals. All right, so now let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 9 and 10. Now this is a passage in which Paul is describing the qualifications for widows in the church. So they can get on the financial support of the church. All right? So, but in the course of doing them, he describes character qualities of these widows that should be financially supported and he describes many important ministries that women can be engaged in verse 9 a widow is to be put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old having been the wife of one man now verse 10 she should have a reputation for good works And he concludes the the verse, same verse, by saying she has devoted herself to every good work. Let me tell you, sisters here, there are so many kinds of good things that you can do. This is true for men, too. It's not just women, it's men. There are so many good works that you can get engaged with, both in the church, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your society, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about how a lady should adorn themselves in the church. And he says, if, instead of getting all gussied up with fancy clothing and fine jewelry, you should put on the robes and the apparel of good works. Be covered. You're, cover yourself. Just be full of good things that you're doing for other people. So 
you know, volunteer at the school. Get involved with nonprofits that are helping needy people. Make meals for people who are sick. I sat in the choir loft the other day, and they were listing off all the, all the people that they were planning to prepare meals for when they went in the hospital. These are good works. Or you might be able to knit little, little hats for babies that are born at the pregnancy center, you know? We've got some examples of people engaged in good works here. There's just so many things that can be done. There's no limit, really. Now, following good works in verse 10, he says, if she has shown hospitality, whoops, I forgot one there. If she has brought up children, I don't want to skip this one, brought up children. Now, I know that in our society today, being a stay-at-home mom and raising children is not a vocation that is very highly esteemed or valued. What generally uh, seems to be the plan is you have, you have these kids, that's pretty cool, and then you go back to work or you go do something else and you let somebody else take care of these kids and raise them up. Let me tell you something. The vocation and the role of rearing children is of extreme importance. Your children are precious to God, and uh, I don't think anybody loves them more than their parents, but anyway, beyond that, this stage of their children's life is of incredible importance. You don't need the Bible to tell you that. You can read all the sociological reports you want, because they will tell you the same thing. First five years of a child's life, the most critical foundational part of a child. And when they're in a loving, supportive family where they, they have pe- parents and uh, people around them that are loving them and stimulating them and helping them to grow, they, they succeed and go on and do better in life. So this is a valuable and important ministry. And I'm speaking here in contrast to what most of our society will say to you, maybe what you feel yourself personally here. I don't know. All right. Uh, after child rearing, she has shown hospitality to stranger, the ministry of being kind to needy people, and uh, particularly people that don't have a place to go, befriending the friendless. He talks. She. Uh, he mentions the ministry of washing the saints' feet, the lowly, humble ministry of doing acts of service that are considered to be low things. Now, uh, in in case you think that that's kind of a put-down, remember, that's the ministry to which Jesus called the deacons that we talked about last week. He knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. And he says, you are to do likewise. And uh, this is a very precious, valuable ministry. Uh, Not not necessarily the literally washing of feet, but the acts of lowly service that others might disdain. She has assisted those in distress. Are there people in distress in our communities today? Are there widows and orphans? Just come and join our benevolence group for a while. You'll find some needy people there. People that don't have homes, people that don't have things to eat, people that don't have clothes, they don't have a, a place to go, you know. Visiting the sick, sick, the shut-ins, there's lots of people in distress. When we did our, our economic assistance fair, we looked at survey, and there's a lot of people who've got families that are hurting and relationships that are messed up. There's a lot of distress in our community, even though it may look calm. These are some of the things that women can be engaged in. Now, I want to shift to Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, and make some comments from this passage. 
Titus chapter 2, Paul writes, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Notice that word there, teaching, right? Are women to teach? That's what it says, right? Teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. There is a great ministry for older, more mature Christian women to invest themselves in the lives of younger women, to help them with matters having to do with a household and the home, and to help them to grow spiritually in the Lord. It's an incredibly powerful ministry, and uh, it's one that uh, I don't see happening a great deal. But uh, women can teach in certain circumstances. Women can teach children, even youth. And uh, we have women like uh, Beth Moore, who've uh, got an extensive teaching ministry directed particularly at women. Uh, So uh, it's not correct to say that women cannot teach. It's just certain circumstances that uh, they are to use and exercise their gifts. Uh, Women can also engage in teaching of adults of both sexes that does not involve exerting spiritual authority. Could a woman teach a man how to read or teach mathematics or teach history? Why not? I mean, there's no sense here of exerting spiritual authority in in those particular cases. I don't think there's a problem with that. Um, And then uh, let's take a quick look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11. I'm not, I, they, they tell you in preaching class, never flip around all these scriptures like this, but I'm breaking the rule. I hope you'll bear with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11. Okay, now, Paul here is describing the qualifications of the deacons, but right in the middle of this whole passage, passage about deacons, we have verse uh, 14. No? Let me find it. Verse 11 where he says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Okay, deacons must do, deacons must do this, and then suddenly he says, women. Now, the word that I've just read as women can be translated either women or wives. It can be either one. So it means either the wife of a deacon or it means a woman deacon. You can kind of go either way on that one. Uh, commentators are divided on that. But remember that in, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Phoebe is mentioned, and she's called a servant or a deacon. Again, same word. You don't know which way, which way to go on that. So there is some biblical evidence that there were female deacons. And we do know from history that some early churches had a, a ministry of deaconesses that served alongside the deacons. They didn't do the same things because they were primarily interested in ministering to women and their needs in their community, but they were deaconesses in some early churches. And I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters, there's women that can minister to other women and even to men sometimes in ways that that men cannot. I am very grateful for the women that go along with me to to make visits in homes or sit with me in counseling sessions and things like that. And sometimes they just turn the corner where I'm just sitting there going, Duh, what do I do? What do I say? Very uh, important uh, ministries can be done. Uh, all right, now, 
uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, uh, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, this isn't going to apply to many of you, but being married to and supporting someone who is in ministry is also an incredibly important ministry for a woman to fulfill. You think being a pastor is a challenging job. Try being a pastor's wife. That's hard. That is a tough and important and valuable ministry. For any married man to be successful in Christian ministry, he must have a wife who's willing to support him, to encourage him, to go through the storms with him, oftentimes to financially support him, love him, and build him up and stay with him through it. It's critically important ministry. Now, back to chapter 3 and verse 11 where it says women in this passage having to do with deacons, right? So if the wife of a deacon, that opens up this whole area of ministry where women can be serving alongside their husbands. In fact, in Acts, we read about the husband-wife ministry team of Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, these two provide the precedent for husband and wife teams in ministry. So I believe it's permissible for husbands and wives to minister to other couples because together as a couple, they can minister more effectively in that way. Well, this just summarizes some of the ways that are suggested that women can have valuable ministry in the pastoral letters. Other passages in the Bibles tell us that women are permitted to pray publicly. Uh, they're permitted to exercise the gift of prophecy under the power of the Holy Spirit as long as they do so in a humble and a respectful way. And there are many other ways that uh, I don't have time to mention. And uh, we can just think of the large contribution of the women that minister here in our church already. And the things they do and how effective they are. And many of you are contributing in that way. Consider also these important ministries that were undertaken by women in the Bible. Do you know that when God sent his, needed to send his son from heaven down into the world... He did it by means of a woman. Mary, the mother of Jesus, provided perhaps the most important ministry, most important job that anybody had ever had up to that time in history. And it was a job that no man could do. Do you know that along with the 12 disciples, there was a band of women that followed Jesus along and ministered to him and the disciples in a variety of different ways, they paid, they, they bankrolled his ministry out of their private means. Do you remember the woman that came to Jesus and knelt down and wet his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair? Of that woman, Jesus said, you know what? This is such a, a momentous moment, such a great thing this woman has done for me. Wherever the gospels preach, this woman's testimony is going to be remembered. I don't remember her ever saying that about a man. And when Jesus went to the cross, most of the men disciples ran and hid. But the women, it testified, Bible tests, were there through the whole brutal thing. They saw where he's buried. And who was it? Brothers and sisters, on the first day of the week, at the crack of dawn, who were up going to the tomb to finish the work of burying the body of Jesus. It was the women. 
They were the first to hear the testimony of the angels that Jesus had risen from the dead. And Mary Magdalene was the first one to see the risen Savior. God in His wisdom planned it that way. Yes, the Lord in His wisdom has assigned certain roles for men, but that does not mean that women are of any less value or any less important to God than a man. There are many important and significant ways women can serve the Lord and contribute to progress in God's kingdom. Let's see if I've forgotten a few... Excuse me. Sorry. See if I've forgotten a few slides. No, no, I haven't. All right, cool. All right, I just want to close by bringing out three points of application or relevance for this message. The first point is this. You know, I think we really need to take a, a long, hard look at the degree to which the church and the members of the church have been influenced by humanistic ideas that are going on in, the, in society around us. I mean, people grow up in society and they're taught, they grow up in school and system and they come into church and they bring all that with us. Some of you here today may have adopted a more worldly view about it uh, without giving much thought to it. And so my, one of the things I hope I've done to do is just challenge you a little bit to look into the Scripture and say that, see that the Scripture really is saying something different. You may not agree with it. You may be seething and saying, boy... I don't like what the pastor is saying out there, but at least I hope you're, you're seeing here there is something different, a different voice, a different direction. And having seen that, I hope you'll at least give it an opportunity to consider and, ch- and, and to think about a different perspective than what's coming at us from the world. We're, world. God's word is not only right, brothers and sisters, God's word is good. It's the best good that can ever be, even though we don't understand it, we don't get it at the beginning. But trust God, because the Lord says, blessed are the ones who know and do His Word. You're going to find blessing in obeying God's Word, even when you don't understand it. The second area of application has to do with discipling and a discipling ministry. One of the greatest challenges we face as a church is to figure out a way to obey Christ's command to make disciples and to pass the ministry of this church on to a younger generation. But disciple-making is, in essence, a teaching and a learning process. So, you know, we as a church need to grapple with and clarify this issue in order to disciple believers in a manner that's consistent with the Word of God. Who's going to teach whom? According to what we've just been learning about here today. What are we going to teach about gender, about roles in marriage and roles in the household and roles in the church? Is it right to model one thing in the home and something different in the church? Shouldn't there be consistency there? This is an area that uh, we need to wrestle with. And finally, at the heart of this issue is the deep human yearning for significance. And how we're going to go about seeking that significance in life. How to meet that need to be and to feel significant. 
So it's imperative for us to go back to what Jesus said on this subject. And I shared this with you last week. I'm just going to briefly uh, share it with you again. You remember how James and John came to Jesus and they said, in your coming administration, your king over all the universe, we want to be right up there next, next door to you. We want high. We, we got plans. We want to be up there. And Jesus patiently and gently takes them all aside and he, he tells them, you know, uh, look, among the Gentiles, they've got their kings and they've got their hierarchies, they've got their, you know, their pecking order, but among you, it's not to be this way. But, he says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your... Come on, tell me. And whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be slave of all. Now, you're getting this, right? Whoever wants to be the greatest, that means significant, first, you're on top, come down low. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many. You see, as far as the Lord is concerned, it's not a matter of becoming significant by pulling yourself by, up by your bull bootstraps and making yourself equal with somebody else or even superior to somebody else. For the Lord Jesus, it's a matter of setting aside your robes and kneeling down and washing somebody's feet. Thinking of others is more important than yourself. You see, if what Jesus taught us is true, if the, on the last day, the last are going to be first and the first are going to be last, I want to tell you something, ladies you probably are going to have the inside track on us men, at least according to Jesus' standard. So the main thought here is uh, God has assigned some roles to men in the home and in the church. Nonetheless, there are many important, significant ways women can serve the Lord and contribute to progress in God's kingdom. Jesus died so that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl doesn't have to go to hell as a result of their sins but can be forgiven and reconciled to God and enjoy the family of God and be with him forever in heaven. And one, of all, one day all this kind of controversial stuff is just going to be gone. We're just going to be with God in heaven but you've got to come into the Lord and surrender and in faith. I don't know, many of you here may know the Lord. You probably do. But maybe there's somebody here that hasn't come to Christ in repentance and in faith and received the one who gave his life. Aren't you glad that he served us by giving his life for us? Why not receive that great and wonderful gift that he's given to us? If you've not done so, repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus and surrender him as Lord. And he will lead you into all the truth. And the truth will make you free. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. I'm thankful for Jesus came here to earth, the, the Son of God in all power and glory, laying aside his heavenly robes, born as a poor little baby in a manger, not even in a hospital, uh, lived a 
simple life and then grew to serve you. He only had one set of clothing to wear. He had no place to lay his head. He was filled with your, yet he was filled with your spirit and you used him mightily. He learned obedience even to death on the cross. He washed my feet so the dirt of my sins could be wiped away. Oh, Father, we may be intent on following this Savior rather than asserting ourselves and putting ourselves ahead. And Help us to love one another as you have loved us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.